Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Street Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, gay. Paging Sherlock and Watson. Because they're gay. And we're gay. Allegedly. Ambiguously. You don't know that. It's subtextual. It might be. There's queer subtext in this podcast. (laughs) And it's about us. The last episode, you said we were Sherlock and Watson, so... Yeah, we are. So, subtextually... Yeah. I think that implies that we're gay. Yeah. We're back reading two of Arthur Conan Doyle's short stories this week. Yeah, we are. Is yours gay? Mine is gay light. It's like the light beer of gay. Okay. I think mine also has some queerness around the edges. Does it? But not at the core, maybe. (laughs) So, the two stories we're covering this week are... The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans and The Five Orange Pips. That's a funny name. It's like Gladys Knight and the Pips. Yes. And this its story is about them, weirdly. <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle was so <laughs> a- ahead of his time that he invented the 1950s R&B group Gladys Knight and the Pips. Let's dive right in. Let's start with your story. Alrighty. So a bit of history. So Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans. It is one of eight stories in the cycle collected as His Last Bow in 1917. This was originally published in The Strand and in Collier's Magazine in the United States in 1908. So these came out the same year. And is the second and final main appearance of Brother Mycroft Holmes. So this is why we wanted to cover your story is that we've been getting a lot of Mycroft content in the adaptations we've been looking at. And I was like, we've really never met the guy except for his brief off-page appearance in the final problem. Yeah, right. And then adaptations, of course. And then adaptations, of course. Where he's a dick. (laughs) Right. So you'll have to let us know how he comes across in the story. Well, I'm glad to report that he's not a dick. Ah, lovely. Yeah. They're kind of just brothers. You know how brothers are? They're brothers. All right, I've heard of brothers. Yeah. (laughs) This is just like that. (laughs) But before Mycroft comes, our story begins. It's a very foggy time in London. That's so funny. My story also begins by talking about the weather in London. Now, this weather is a four-day fog, which is a long time for a fog. And it's a yellow fog, so I don't know if it's actually fog. What are you suggesting? I'm suggesting pollution, Sure, sure. Because they mentioned, like, there's, like, yellow residue, like, water driplets on the window. So I'm like, that sounds like oil. Yeah. From, like, a factory. That pea soup fog thing. Yeah. So we have this fog, and Sherlock doesn't like the fog. Because he can't look out the window and, like, spy on people. I love that. He's so (laughs) retired-coded. Not only is he retired coded, but he's also like, there's probably so many things happening out there, but I can't be privy to them because there's a fog. People probably aren't reporting all the crimes that are happening because there's a fog. This is annoying. But luckily, near the end of the fog, we get a telegram from good old brother Mycroft. And uh, Mycroft is like, hey, 
So there was this little uh, thing in the paper. I'm coming to see you about it. And Sherlock and Watson, they kind of talk about this recent story that was seen in the paper of a guy named Arthur Cadigan West, who was found on the side of the train tracks, dead, no blood, but dead. And what made like his case notable is like there was no train ticket found. There was just like theater tickets found. Like not much is really known about this case. Like it's a very unusual case because like it wasn't robbery. Like all of his possessions are there. There doesn't seem to be like any like scuffles or like anything that anybody else has heard on the train. And like I said, he had no train ticket. So there was no way of knowing like where did he come from or where did he go, Cotton Eye Joe? So it's a very unusual case. Mycroft enters. And before Mycroft enters, we learn that Mycroft works for the British government. What does he do? Everything, really. He's just kind of like the the man for the British government, you know? You have a little secrets that you want to pass to somebody else? Go to Mycroft. You want to do some espionage? Mycroft. He's kind of your go-to guy. I think this is the story where we get the line about him being the British government sometimes. Yes. What does that mean? Did they explain? Not really. No. It, it's just like... <laughs> sometimes he is the British government. Yeah. Sometimes he kind of, I don't want to say overrules everything, but he is the man that makes the decisions for people or causes things to happen. Uh, so Mycroft appears, and so does Lestrade, our good friend Lestrade. And they're like, so, about this Cadigan West thing that you read about in the paper, he's part of this real big crisis that even has the British Prime Minister upset. And so he had in his pocket, in his possession, along with his other things, very important plans for a Bruce Partington submarine. Named after... Doesn't say. So yeah, there were 10 plans locked in a safe in an area outside of London. The 10 are missing. Seven of them were in Cardigan West's pocket, and three are still on the loose. Wait. So, wait. Seven of them were in his pocket... Yes. ...when the body was found? Yes. Oh. So whoever killed him didn't take the plans... Or perhaps he took all ten plans? We don't know. Mm -hmm. And then someone only took three of them. Right. And these three are the most important ones. Oh, they're not all duplicates of the same thing? (laughs) No. No, they're each individual pieces of how to build this submarine. Hmm. And the three most important ones on how to build and what you need for it are still missing. Now, if I were an evil villain Mm -hmm. and I was stealing plans... To make a submarine. Uh-huh. I would steal all the plans to make the submarine. Probably. But, like, I don't know. The most important ones, you definitely want. If sure. there's, like, extra fluff. You know how, like, when you're building, like, an Ikea thing, there's all, all that extra fluff at the beginning, <laughs> and then the really important stuff in the middle, and then extra fluff at the end? Like, yeah, but it's not like don't you... put hazardous materials on it. May cause a fire. You know, that stupid stuff. When you really just want the instructions? Yeah, but it's not like you can throw away seven-tenths of the instruction manual. You can if you want to, if you rip them out. I think it would impede your ability to build the Billy Bookcase. 
or the blow high. No, that is true. You need to know how to build a blow high. So Sherlock is entrusted into figuring out what's going on. Where are these plans? Who stole these plans? For the sake of our country, do it. The thing about this case is that this case somewhat perplexes Sherlock in a way that kind of excites him. Mm -hmm. And throughout the story, Watson kind of notices like when Sherlock is happy that he's figured something out in this case. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Watson is being very attentive to Sherlock Mm -hmm. during this entire case because I think he knows like he's been very cooped up in the house for four days. Mm -hmm. Because of the fog. Because of the fog. You can't go out when there's a fog. You can't go out. You know, it's probably smog actually. And that could kill you. So what is Sherlock perplexed by? Well, Sherlock is perplexed by the fact that Cadogan West does not have a ticket. Oh, why was he near the train? Right. And it is very clear that he was thrown off the train and not jumped off the train or anything of that nature. Mm -hmm. So we go to these vaults where the plans were originally held and we learn that three people have special keys to the vault. Cadogan West, of course. Sir James Walter, the head of the submarine department. And then another guy... By the name Oberstein. So yeah, those are our three guys who are suspects. The Cadigan West is dead. And at this point, everybody is kind of being like, yeah, he did it. He like, stole the He stole the plans. Right. But Sherlock is like, now wait just a second, fellas. Why would he be dead if he stole all the plans? Is he working for someone? And the the other thing about this case, as you're reading it, is that you really don't learn about it until the very end, what is happening. Mm. So most of it is just them traveling around to different locations. So they travel to the train station. They travel to this vault place. They also go to the house of the head of the submarine department. Surprise! Head of submarine department guy is dead. And his younger brother is there, who is a colonel, Colonel Valentine Walter. And Sir James Walter had literally just died. Of how? It's just a coincidence that he died. Not of moida of anything. And there's really no... Died of coincidence. Right. Yeah, died of coincidence, really. So, basically, Sherlock does what he normally does. He like, okay, I'm going to go out and do this thing. Watson, go home. <laughs> and just like, you know, phone my brother. Tell him we're getting close or give me the list of like all the government people who, you know, who would also have access to it. One more thing at the vault place that Sherlock notices that puts a smile upon his face that Watson, you know, notices and gives a nice little smile too, is that outside there is a window to the vault room that is very safely secured, except like there is a little crevice to see things happening inside the room. From the vault? No, from the outside. Mm. So, like, it is a very heavily barred window, like, parallel bars in a way, uh-huh. that you can't see in to the vault room, except for one slight little crevice. And Sherlock notices outside of, like, that window, there's a bush with uh, broken twigs and stuff, showing that somebody was outside looking. So then we also get a classic Sherlock thing where he messages Watson and he's like, 
hey, I figured this out. Meet me for dinner. And Watson does. And Sherlock is like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. First, let's get Mycroft and Lestrade. Second, no, no, wait, let's not get Mycroft and Lestrade. Let's just tell them what we know so far. Second, we're going to go to this nice little area, like under a bridge, because right there, there should be a little something to get into the tunnels where the train goes through. So then they go into the tunnels and they find the door that is like overhead for where the trains will come through. And Sherlock predicts, or by this point knows, that at some point in these tunnels, the trains make a stop for a short period of time. So while looking in these tunnels before the train comes, they notice that there is some soot in the tunnels that, like on the walls of the tunnels, and that some of it has kind of been rubbed off, and that there is also what appears to be an old blood stain. Hmm. So Sherlock is like, that's how he fell off the train. He was put here on top of the train, and when the train moved, that is when he fell off. Hmm. And which is why he never had a ticket to the train. He was never on the he train. He was never on the train. So where, who's the blood from, though? Because he didn't have blood on him. That's from him. Oh, but there wasn't any blood on the body, I thought. There wasn't any blood on the body anymore. It all went in the tunnel? Yeah, it all went in the tunnel, funnily enough. That doesn't seem possible. There was no blood on the ground or anything when his body was found. And not on the body either. Yeah. It all cleanly left the body and went into the tunnel. Yep. And Arthur Conan and I have some questions. <laughs> Uh, and then the train comes and it does stop and it confirms like there is a small window of opportunity to put the body there. Mm-hmm. And there's about four feet between the train and the the door at the top of the roof. So there's like four feet of space hmm. to get the body on top of there. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Perfect. So then conveniently near this tunnel is kind of a warehouse of some sort with a bunch of rooms and that is where Oberstein lived. Oh? Yeah, Oberstein lived in, like, this warehouse area. Why? Don't know. He just lived there. He was getting paid a government salary. You'd think he'd be able to afford an apartment? <laughs> he lived there with a sing- single valet. So they check out this little area. They search through everything. They can't really find anything except for a little tin can with... A record of series of messages in the advertisements of the paper, the Daily Telegraph. Oh, like coded messages? A little bit. Like, they are actual, like, advertisements. They're all, like, too complex for description. Must have full reports. Stuff awaits you when goods delivered. Matter presses. Must withdraw offer unless contract completed. Make appointment by letter. Will confirm by advertisement. So these are all advertisements that were in papers. And this is how they spoke. Oversign spoke with somebody that he was going to, I guess, sell the plans to. Uh-huh. Or whoever was going to sell the plans to okay. Oberstein or vice versa. Uh-huh. So this is how this issue came about. So then Sherlock is like, great. I know what to do. Let's get Mycroft and Lestrade. Sherlock kind of updates Mycroft and Lestrade and everything that's happening. And then Sherlock is like, hey, have you seen Perot's advertisement today? And they're like, another one. And it says, tonight, same hour, same place, two taps, most vitally important, your own safety at stake, Perot. And Lestrade is like, wow, if he answers that, we got him. 
And Sherlock's like, yeah, he should answer that. That was my idea when I put that in. <laughs> so the gang go to this area by the train again, and they wait for the two taps. They get the two taps. They apprehend their bad guy. And who would it be but Sir James Walter's brother, Colonel Valentine Walter, who is the younger brother of James Walter, who is the head of the submarine department. And he confesses everything and what had happened. So what had happened was he stole the plans, but he was caught by Cadogan West, who was on the way to the theater with his wife when he saw Walker going past on her way to where the vault is. And so he followed him. Cadogan West saw everything and then was subsequently killed by Walter and then placed on top of the train. So really, if Sherlock had interviewed Cadogan's wife, he would have known all this much sooner because she would have been like, oh, yeah, we saw a guy walking the other Mm -hmm. way and he went and followed him. Right. Sherlock did not follow every lead he had. (laughs) Didn't even investigate what happened to how he was last seen alive. (laughs) But... And then Walter is like, I've been working for Overseen. I'll give you, like, all of his information and everything. Like, whatever you want me to do, I will comply. And Sherlock makes Walter write a letter to Overseen asking him to come by with 500 more dollars. Because the only reason Walter did all this was because he needed money. So... I thought he was a lord? He's a lord, but, you know, he owes money to somebody else. Sure. Thing. So he needed the money. And Overseen is stupid enough to follow through and be like, okay, here I come with $500 and I'll meet you somewhere and gets apprehended. So Overseen is Piero. Yes. Uh. Both of them go to jail, Overseen and Walter. Walter dies in prison, unfortunately. Oh, all the plans are found as well. Hmm. So everything is safe. Happy ending. Yeah. Happy ending. What did you think of the story? It was okay. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I didn't hate it. Uh-huh. I, I guess I was just confused by everything, in a way. Yeah, your story's fairly long for one of the short stories. Yeah. It's a very long one that I don't think necessarily needs to be long. Yeah. Because, honestly, three pages are describing Mycroft and what his job is. Well, that's what we're here for. But, like, his job is government. Sure. He's basically Ken. Yeah. His job is just government and nothing else. What do you think of Mycroft in this story? I know he's not in it very much. He's okay. He and Sherlock are kind of the same character in a way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're kind of the same person. They're, they're kind of like how brothers are where one is like talking and then the other one's talking and like egging each other on like, oh, we're doing this. Oh, and then this and then that and then this. Like, hmm. it's interesting. And there's a lot of cute Watson and Sherlock stuff in this as well. Like, Watson is just very, like I said, observant of Sherlock and very caring towards Sherlock. And there's a moment where Sherlock is also very caring of Watson. There's a point where he's like, I wouldn't do this without my dear friend. That's sweet. Yeah. They were friends. They're friends. Probably more. Probably more than friends. Probably more than friends. But yeah, it's it's a serviceable short story. What's curious is that the two stories we're reading today were adapted together into an episode of BBC's Sherlock Mm. TV show, an episode called The Great Game, which finishes the first season. Mm. But otherwise, the two stories are really not related. Your story is giving us 
the background of Mycroft. We've used it for a couple episodes now. And my story, I wanted to take a look at because it was referenced by our guest, Sarah Golub. Mm-hmm. And we, I knew there was a case where Sherlock Holmes went up against the KKK. And I was like, I'm kind of curious about that. Let's find that story. Right. So, The Five Orange Pips was published in 1891 in mm-hmm. Strand Magazine. And Arthur Conan Doyle says this is one of his 12 favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, one of 12. Is it, like, at 12 or...? Number seven. Okay. So, halfway. So, we can try to figure out why later. <laughs> I like how he ranks his own stories. Yeah. I, I like that, too. The Wikipedia page for this story also points out that... Conan Doyle using the clan as the villains was, quote, in line with his recurrent theme of wild and violent Americans and other foreigners exporting their power struggles to Victorian Britain, which had already formed the basis to a study in Scarlet, the very first Holmes mystery. <laughs> so this will have some relationship to that story. Okay. Although not extremely. Our story starts in a rainy September in London. Mm. So you had said fog, mine has rain. It actually starts with Watson being like, well, we solved many cases, and some of them are interesting, and others are not interesting, and they all bear different qualities, and (laughs) I haven't written about all of them, you know, like that kind of thing. And there are some things about these short stories that I think become sort of formulaic, like the openings are just sort of Watson being like, there are many stories, and this is one of them. Yeah. And then there's often a midpoint where Sherlock is like, my deduction has a method, and the method is that I understand everything perfectly and that I know everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, that shows up in this story, too. It's funny that, that that Arthur feels the need to include them every single time, because it's like, we know. We know he has a method. We know there are many stories. So what he says about this story is that it is so remarkable in its details and so startling in its results that, quote, I am tempted to give some account of it in spite of the fact that there are some points in connection with it which never have been and probably never will be entirely cleared up. So, a mystery mystery. Hmm. The story is set in 1887, in a rainy September of that year. Okay. And it's so rainy that they haven't had any clients. Hmm. And they've just been sitting home alone, (laughs) being domestic. Good for them. It says, Sherlock Holmes sat moodily at one side of the fireplace, cross-indexing his records of crime, while I at the other was deep in one of Clark Russell's fine sea stories, until the howl of the gale from without seemed to blend with the text, and the splash of the rain to lengthen out into the long swash of the sea waves. My wife was on a visit to her mother's, and for a few days I was a dweller once more in my old quarters at Baker Street. Not the wife. <laughs> so, uh, also as Sarah referenced, this is a classic example of Mary left town for a couple days, and Watson said, well, I'll just move back into Baker Street <laughs> for those same couple days. <laughs> That's a normal thing that people do with their friends. Right. But I also love this little slice of life of the, what the two of them do when they don't have crimes to solve. They're just, right. like, hanging out together. Yeah. Like, quietly enjoying each other's company while doing their own thing. I kind of love that for them. Yeah. Very, very, very cute. It is at this moment that the client arrives. Hmm. He is a 22-year-old. He has braved the storm to, to come out because his life is in danger. Hmm. So his name is John Openshaw. And he begins to tell his tale, which is that he had a grandfather once. That's it. (laughs) And his grandfather had two sons, his father and his uncle Elias. That makes sense for families. That's how families work. Yeah. 
Nothing out of the ordinary. Right. And the uncle emigrated to America. Uh, well, there's the problem. There's the problem. This is what it says. He became a planter in Florida. At the time of the war, he fought in Jackson's army, where he rose to the rank of colonel. And then when Lee laid down his arms, my uncle returned to his plantation, where he remained for three or four years. So Jackson's army, I meant to look this up. Jackson's army and living in Florida and when Lee laid down his arms makes me think that he fought on the Confederate side in the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. And went back to the plantation. And then went back to work at a plantation. Yeah. So. Ooh. Stick with me. My story gets worse. Oh, no. It goes on to describe that he's fairly racist. Well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but after moving back to England, he sets up residence in a town called Horsham. He has this estate there, and he takes a liking to our young protagonist, who, this is a decade ago, he's 12, and gets him involved in the affairs of the house. Mm. And then one day, March of 1883, a letter arrives from India. Okay. And in the envelope mm-hmm. are five orange pips. Okay. Which, from context, I think are the seeds of the orange. Got it. And on the, like, inside flap of the envelope are written KKK. Oh, no. Well, we, I mean, we saw where this is going. From India? From India. How mysterious. This would make sense, because if, like, you said the uncle's in Florida? He was in Florida, yeah, but he's he's back in England now. Okay, but it would make sense if, like, orange seeds from Florida and the KKK. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm confused about the India yeah. aspect of this. Yeah. And no doubt Sherlock was, too. So the uncle is, like, horrified by this. He's like, this means my death. This is awful. And he spends the next several weeks, like, barely leaving his room and then, like, like getting drunk and going into the yard and yelling that no one can threaten him. He also has this locked room that he never lets his nephew into. And he goes there and finds this box, which is also marked KKK, and burns everything inside of it. And he says, that, that'll show them. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll maneuver them. He also rewrites his will so that John, our hero's father, inherits the estate and then that John inherits it after him. Okay. One day, the uncle goes out and is found dead, lying face down in, like, a small pool of water, and it's ruled, like, accidental death or a suicide. Mm. But John's like, that doesn't seem right. He was very afraid of dying. He wouldn't be so careless. That isn't like him. Something is afoot here. Right. And he tells the story to his father, but they're not really sure what to think of it. And his father inherits oh, his estate and moves in. Yes? So the racist uncle is, in, is, is with them? Is dead now. Okay. He's the one who died. And we want to figure this out? Well, I'll, I'll explain why we want to figure it out. So the father moves in, and then in January of 1885, the father receives an envelope with five orange pips in it, with the same KKK on the inside of the envelope. And this one is postmarked from Dundee. Like the crocodile. Like the crocodile. And it has also an instruction. It says, put the papers on the sundial. And the father's not sure what to make of that. And he goes to visit a friend and winds up dead. He falls into, falls, in quotes, into a chalk pit. So now this 22-year-old, John, has inherited the estate. And he, like, is sort of freaked out by these horrible things. But then yesterday morning, 
he received an envelope with the five pips postmarked from London. Whoever has all these oranges, damn. <laughs> well, it, they're all years apart, so I, I myself, with my meager funds, can manage to have an orange every year. <laughs> That's fair. Can we go back to how the... Does this story want us to feel bad for the racist dying? No, I think we want to feel bad for the kid who got caught up in this, because now the five pips signal that his life is in danger. That's fair. Okay. And he's like, oh no, everybody who else who had this happen to them met their untimely end in odd, odd circumstance. I don't want that to happen to me. You have to help me. Yeah. Okay. And Sherlock is like, you shouldn't have delayed. You should have come to me sooner. The only thing you can do is rush home right now. Put There's a piece of a scrap of paper that was saved from the fire that he shows to Sherlock. He's like, put that scrap of paper into the box that every, all the other papers came out of and write a note explaining everything was burned and put that on the sundial. Do it immediately so that you aren't killed, basically. And then I will do some some investigating. I think I need to investigate here in London first and then I will come out to the estate and, and wrap this thing up. Yeah. Sherlock deduces that all of the places that the letters have been postmarked from are port towns mm. and that the amount of time between when the deaths occurred and when the letter arrived is the difference between the mail boat bringing the letter and whatever sailing vessel the perpetrators are in getting to the same place. Okay. So they receive the letter and then in the, after that the people on the boat arrive and kill whoever it is. Oh, okay. That needs killing. Interesting. But this latest letter was postmarked from London. So it's they're already here. They're already here. So at this point, Watson's like, well, what's the KKK? Well? And Sherlock pulls out the American Encyclopedia, the K book, and turns to the entry about the Ku Klux Klan, which is reproduced here. Well, I say reproduced. I'm, I'm sure it's fictionalized because the it mostly talks about how they do this thing where they warn people about their deaths by sending them <laughs> letters with odd things enclosed. Uh, oh, it suggests a sprig of oak leaves in some parts, melon seeds or orange pips in others. On receiving this, the victim might either openly abjure his former ways or might fly from the country. If he braved the matter out, death would unfailingly come upon him, and usually in some strange and unforeseen manner. It also says at the end of the entry, eventually in the year 1869, the movement rather suddenly collapsed, although there have been sporadic outbreaks of the same sort since that date. So, a couple things here. For one thing, this last part was accurate at the time that Arthur Conadilla wrote it, but there was a resurgence of the Klan in the early 20th century. Right. And they continue to this day. Right, from a film called Birth of a Nation. Right. And the other thing is that I don't think this, like, coded message about sending fruit seeds to people is part of the clan mythology. I've never heard that before. It's almost like... It's Arthur, very much like the Mormons. It's almost like in Murder by Decree, what was the name of that cult? Was it the Freemasons? Yes. Uh-huh. It's almost as if he's putting what the Freemasons do into the KKK, in mm. a way. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever accused the KKK of subtlety. No. Never, really. Never. So, interesting. The next morning, Sherlock has risen early to get ready for a day of sleuthing. But Watson turns over the morning paper to find out that they're too late. 
And ah. John Openshaw, the client, is dead. He fell into the water while walking home. And it was ruled an, an accidental death because of how dark it was. And Sherlock surmises that they lured him under the bridge somehow and pushed him into the water because he was away from the crowd when he right. died. This is one of only two Arthur Conan Doyle stories where the client dies. Yes. <laughs> this does not happen very often. No. But Sherlock decides to solve the case as a matter of vengeance at this point. Well, I guess I guess my question is, who is the next owner of the estate? Because I, I feel like that's the obvious possible answer of who did this. Oh, like it's all just to get the estate. Yeah. Because that's usually what stuff like this is about. Mm-hmm. I also want to point out that Sherlock is really upset about this. This isn't just like manly revenge. Here's what he says. That hurts my pride, Watson. It is a petty feeling, no doubt, but it hurts my pride. It becomes a personal matter with me now, and if God sends me help, I shall set my hand upon this gang, that he should come to me for help, and that I should send him away to his death. He sprang from his chair and paced about the room in uncontrollable agitation, with a flush upon his sallow cheeks and a nervous clasping and unclasping of his long, thin hands. I, I'll admit, when I was reading it, I was like, probably you shouldn't have let him go alone. <laughs> yeah, that was dumb on his part. Probably should have, probably should have been like, hey, it's dark and rainy outside. Stay here for the night. Honestly, yeah. Or we'll walk with you or something. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, Sherlock thought it was like, well, there's a crowd outside because it's like rush hour, effectively. So they'll have a hard time of getting to you. But clearly they didn't. No, God. So Sherlock goes off to figure out the case. We don't follow him. Watson goes to work as a doctor and then goes back to Baker Street because he lives there for the time being. Right. (laughs) While his wife is out of town. Uh, And Sherlock comes in at like 10 p.m. and like grabs the first like food he finds, which is like a chunk of bread off the counter because he hasn't eaten all day because he's been so obsessed with the case. And he says, okay, I'm going to get them good. And he he takes out an orange. He takes out five orange seeds and posts them to Captain James Calhoun, Bark Lone Star, Savannah, Georgia. And writes where they had been writing KKK. He writes SH4JO, J-O being John Openshaw. And he reveals to Watson that Captain Calhoun is the leader of the gang Maybe of the KKK? I'm not clear on that. Or okay. of, just, of just this group of the KKK, perhaps? How do you figure this out? Well, so what he did is he looked at port documents from what ships were docked, which places, at which times. So at the time when the first letter was sent from Pondicherry in India, there were 36 ships docked at that time that could have sent the letter. One of them was called the Lone Star. And what's hilarious is that he has a vague sense that this is like an American thing, but he doesn't know exactly what what it is. This is this is what it says. The Lone Star instantly attracted my attention since, although it was reported as having cleared from London, the name is that which is given to one of the states of the Union. Watson says, Texas, I think. Sherlock again. I was not and am not sure which, but I knew that the ship must have an American origin. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that Sherlock is such an Anglophile. Yes. He's like, I refuse to know anything more about America than I absolutely have to. (laughs) And honestly, I don't blame him. (laughs) Right. Especially because it's full of all those murderous cultists. Right. So the same ship, the Lone Star, 
also docked at Dundee and then in East London, and he ran down to the docks to try to find it, but it had already moved on, headed back to America, they think. So he sends word to the police in Georgia that these men are wanted for murder and to apprehend them and send them back. And again, on what evidence? <laughs> I, feel like right. a, I feel like a lot of these cases get solved on completely speculative evidence where he's like, I've solved it. Do you need me to prove it? I said they were guilty. So I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but it doesn't matter because the ship never reaches America. There's weather and they sink in, on the open sea. <laughs> and that's how the story ends. And thus dies the KKK. And it never happened again. It never happened again. God, I hate that we live in a country that has a KKK. Period. <laughs> that has a KKK to this day. Yeah. This was seventh? His, His seventh, seventh favorite, favorite story, right. That's a bad story. It's a, not a, yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Sherlock's righteous anger is interesting. And him going up against, like, real-world evil people is also interesting. But then this way that Arthur Conan Doyle has of turning, like, the KKK into three men on a boat who have spent several years traveling around so as to mysteriously send messages to one family that... It's implied that the uncle was the reason the KKK dissolved, because he stole all the papers, and they wanted to get them back because it was records of who was affiliated with it, and it was going to, like, reveal which significant Southern men were secretly part of this hate organization. But, like, what a bizarre... Oh, wait. What a, what a bizarre way of tracking them down. Wait, so, like, the... Uncle was maybe a good guy? Maybe, but, like, it also sounds like the... Uh, so they they wanted it to get rid of him, or...? No, no, no. The KKK has effectively dissolved. Okay. Presumably because he took these papers with him, seemingly. I'm unclear about the relationship. Okay. And so it's revenge for that, that they want to get the papers back and, I guess, kill his family line. And slash or. Okay. It's really, it's a very complicated way of doing this because I don't know why they have to sail around so much. It seems like they could, like, just camp out near his estate and get this all done much faster. Like, what are they doing on the boat for three years? Also, it just feels so unresolved. Like, I know, like, they die in a boating accident. Right. But this is, like, the first time that I felt very, like, huh. Yeah, nobody... Nothing really happened. Nobody really gets a happy ending. There's also kind of no crime. I mean, murder. Murder, for sure, but it's never proved to be murder, even though we think it is yeah you know a client comes and says i feel i fear that i may be murdered and then he is and you know it's just pointless yeah and also there's no like big the kkk is bad because racism is bad that too yeah you know it's just sort of like these quaint americans with their cult it's, it feels interchangeable with any other american cult yeah and you know as an american i feel very different about the kkk than i do about mormons right for example yeah, the Mormons seem more evil in their story. Yeah. Which, yeah, I don't feel, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. That's icky. I don't think it's number seven for me. No, this is like number 75. He doesn't even have 75, but it's yeah. number 75. Of, of the 60 stories. Yeah. This is number 75. There's some cute queer subtext moments. Okay. I like that Watson has moved back into Baker Street. Well, of course. <laughs> I like that they have this domestic thing where, like, he's he's moved in just to, like, hang out with Sherlock over some rainy days. 
<laughs> like he doesn't want to be alone. He's just like, I'm gonna read my novel in this chair and you can index your crime records. <laughs> that's that. So that's the five orange pips. Boo. <laughs> Yeah, Bruce Parting can plan as some proper intrigue. There's clues, things get discovered. I guess. I, I feel like we both got very mid to bad stories today. They can't be all winners. They can't all be winners. Sometimes you gotta have the mid ones. Mm-hmm. They can't all be the Red-Headed League. No. Oh, I love Red-Headed League. I love the Red-Headed League. More of that. Arthur, if you're listening, write more of that. Yes, please, Arthur. Okay, so next week... We are discussing... Well, first and foremost, we're back. The strike is over, so now... Oh, yeah. So now, we are covering what would have been Struck Work, starting next week, when we cover a double feature, Mm -hmm. two parody films. Yeah. One, Without a Clue, starring Michael Caine, Mm -hmm. and The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, starring Gene Wilder, who also writes and directs. Yes. Both movies a trip in entirely different ways. So, if you want to hear about that, you can join us next week right here. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next time.